welcome to my coaching podcast, Dancing in the Moment, where I chat to people from the world of coaching and psychology about their story, their approach, and their insights about the coaching profession. They're all people I like, respect and admire for the way they show up in the world. I hope you enjoy. Hi, um, welcome to Dancing in the Moment, my podcast where I get to speak to lots of wonderful people, coaches, thought leaders in the world of personal development, coaching, psychology and therapy. And today I am really delighted to welcome Yannick Jacob, who is an existential coach, a positive psychologist, a coach trainer, a supervisor, and has written a great book on existential coaching. The reason that I particularly wanted to speak to Yannick today was because um, we have had conversations before about this kind of intersection between therapy, coaching, counselling, and we both sit and dance actually in this space. In fact, Yannick doesn't just dance in it, he kind of salsas around it. But it's of great interest to people on our training courses. Lots of questions are around, is this coaching? Is this therapy? What do I do? Am I allowed to go here? So who better to ask than Yannick, who I know has some really uh, powerful and interesting views on this. So I'm going to hand over to you, Yannick, and welcome you. It's an absolute delight to see you here today. The delight is all mine. Hi, Kim. <laughs> hi, hi. So can we start, Yannick, by just like hearing your story? What brought you to this work? Mm-hmm. So I came in through, well, wanting to, essentially wanting to do something that's not going to get boring to me. <laughs> I've uh, recognized quite early that I'm somebody who uh, dabbles in something, finds uh, things exciting. And then once I kind of uh, grasp the system quite quickly, um, I, and I can see where it's going, and I just need to put the 20 years of work in to master it, um, I'm like, well, maybe there's something else that's interesting. So I uh, went through all kinds of different sports and all kinds of different areas of hobbies and interest. Um, And then when it came to what do I actually study and choose as a career, um, I I figured that people are not going to get boring ever. Uh, When you think you've figured them all out, uh, they change. (laughs) And if you really think you've figured a group of people out enough, you can always switch to a different group of people. So um, that's what got me to studying the mind and uh, coming to the UK in uh, 2005 to uh, study psychology. And um, as it so happened, uh, I fell into this uh, positive psychology module uh, just because it sounded fascinating. You know, what's right with people and what's happiness and, you know, what are the pillars of well-being? What are resources that we can work with? Optimal human functioning. Um, I thought that is amazing. That's a new science. You know, there's lots to find out. It's uh, it's, that's very cool. I'll just do that. Um, and then I found out about this, this one master's program in Pennsylvania under Martin Seligman. And I asked my tutor at the time, uh, hey, Ilona Bonneville, um, can you tell me something about this master's course? 
Uh, and she's like, yeah, there's also another one, the second one in the world, and it's here with me. <laughs> and I thought, well, why don't I do that then? So I kind of fell into this whole uh, applied positive psychology community, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and that's how I found out about coaching. I was uh, interested and curious about uh, psychotherapy and counseling initially because I enjoyed the, the open, honest uh, relationship between two people where somebody wants to you know, grapple with life's questions and you know, move, move forward essentially um, um, from things they're struggling with. Um, and then I found out about coaching and it seems a lot more me. I just immediately connected with a practice because it was more open. I was, and maybe still am a bit of a rebel. And, you know, uh, I think it's important that you have the freedom to do things that you feel are useful, important and appropriate. Um, and the therapy world seemed uh, harshly overregulated. And uh, obviously, uh, as I grew older, I, I could see perfectly why. And I think some regulation is probably important. Um, but at the time, connected, I connected deeply to coaching. Um, but then I figured, well, a lot of positive psychologists, in my taste, are way too positive. You know, it felt limited um, in how they, how they view the work. Um, and I, I felt I needed something that appreciates and acknowledges uh, the many challenges and all of the curveballs that life throws at you, the, the paradoxes and dilemmas of human existence. Um, because life is not all positive. And I know positive psychology is not about everything positive, but it's looking specifically at the positive spectrum and how we can integrate it into psychology as usual. So I needed to something that expands. I wanted to work with people across the spectrum of what they might be going through um, on, a, on a regular daily basis, you know, and successful CEO might have a breakdown or going through a crisis of character or identity or authenticity. Um, somebody who is at the lower end of the mental health spectrum. Sometimes they just need to reach a goal. They need to move house. They want to learn a new skill. Um, so I, I figured I wanted an approach that is uh, future-proof um, and that can deal with the whole spectrum of what people go through. So something that integrates elements of psychotherapy and elements of coaching. At the time, there was nothing around that I could study that is integrative. Now, um, Nash Popovich, a colleague of mine at the University of East London, uh, he runs a master's in integrative coaching and counseling uh, based on his personal consultancy model. By the way, that's a really good book to read about the integration of, uh, of coaching and counseling. But it didn't exist at the time. So the closest I found was something called existential coaching. And because of the nature of the existential questions, well, why am I here? What does existence mean? How do I experience living, you know, as a human being in the world with others? You know, questions about meaning and freedom. All of these, by nature, I felt were quite therapeutic questions, or at least an exploration of the questions could be quite a therapeutic process, but in a coaching framework. So I'm like, oh, here I've got my integration, you know, at least as close as it gets. And so I did a master's in existential coaching. I was lucky enough that uh, uh, that was the first ever cohort in the first ever master's in this field um, at the New School of Psychotherapy and Counseling uh, here in London under Amy van Dersen and Monica Hannaway. Um, and that was just that opened up something in me that I deeply connected to the philosophy and it provided me with a framework of understanding and appreciating human existence that people could relate to once you translate it from the dense philosophy into actual tangible examples of living. You know, it allowed me to have a solid yet flexible framework to integrate all of the stuff that I like about positive psychology and cognitive behavioral practices, psychodynamic or 
um, uh, you know, a gestalt and NLP, like all of these bits that you come across in your CPDs as a coach, I could wonderfully integrate into this framework of understanding human existence. And that just uh, opened up and grounded me um, at the same time in this, in this world of coaching. I knew I found my thing to, to this positive existentialism, you know, because it often seems quite dark as a philosophy. We're going to die and life is meaningless. And, you know, we can, nobody can really fully understand uh, us because, you know, we're all different. And, um, but I saw it as positive with my positive psychology lens as inherently liberating. If there are no rules and no meaning in the world, you make your own meaning and your own rules. You know, the only rules that exist are the ones you accept or the ones you create. So there's more to say, but like that's, that's how I, I got grounded um, in, in existential coaching. Wow, thank you. I feel really excited listening to you on a number of levels. First, because this kind of streak of uh, curiosity and rebellion runs through you and everything that you say. And uh, I can see how this craving not to be bored has played out and resulted in you finding what you've described as a kind of, you know, I think it's like a, a link between all these strands of, of different therapeutic and helping um, routes. Uh, and I personally felt inspired by what you were saying. It made more sense to me than, than I've ever realized. Um, because, you know, I also trained as a therapist first. I trained in the sort of art of Freudian psychodynamic psychotherapy. And then... Uh, and then moved myself much like you did just by kind of searching and questing and looking and wanting a more balanced perspective. I, I moved through various different disciplines and, and then sort of plumped for coaching and have been coaching for many years and teaching coaching for many years. But there's always this um, tension within me about the you know what to, to make it really extreme the sort of negative looking at the past darkness of conventional therapy and the overdone positivity sometimes of the generalized personal development industry um, and it's been a particularly apparent to me of late during our current global crisis where people have and, they, and this spreads beyond the world of coaching and just into our world now, this kind of, you know, come on, you can think yourself out of anything. <laughs> Let's find a silver lining for this. And people have been, have felt really torn and unable to say, actually, I'm scared. I'm anxious. I don't like it because it seems like we're always supposed to, you know, think ourselves out of it. So how you've described that's essential uh, coaching as anchoring uh, those two extreme ends of the spectrum is, is exciting for me. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's a lot about holding paradox in existential philosophy. And uh, just before, before we've turned on the recording, we already started talking about it, how, you know, in, in these, we are both holding paradox personally um, when we look at what's happening in the world right now, on one end, we are inspired that, you know, there's, there's so many people uh, asking themselves big questions, 
you know, and there's so much exciting work happening as people transition their businesses into a completely new dimension. You know, there's so much uh, work going on of, of people being extremely creative and moving things forward, finding solutions to problems. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of suffering in the world. And uh, it's really, it can be really challenging to hold that kind of paradox. And uh, in existential philosophy, uh, we talk a lot about how we hold paradox because we, we want uh, conflicting things at the same time. We want to belong, but we also want to be individual. We want uh, certainty before we make decisions, but we can't really get certainty. The, the world is inherently uncertain and very complex and difficult to grasp. You know, we, we want to not think about death and endings because it's uh, anxiety provoking. Um, but we, we can't, like we sort of have to live as if there was no endings or death. If we would constantly be aware of our own surmise, it's really difficult to be happy in that sense. I mean, this is a longer conversation, but like we, we, we live with these uh, conflicts um, just as a result of being human. And I think this is where, where therapy and coaching come together in these times. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat envious and also really grateful that I am where I am because part of me would have loved to go through a, a classic therapeutic training, you know, because the, um, the depth of the human psyche that you get to explore. Um, many coaches I know, uh, many coaches are supervised and have trained. They want to work with the deep, meaningful stuff, the questions around identity, the, the, the important questions that people grapple with. They want to go there. You know, but many of them feel under-equipped to open up things about trauma or grief around endings, either loss of human life or loss of the world as you know it. You know, there's, uh, there's processes, psychological processes at work that many coaches long to understand and long to work with, but they don't necessarily want to invest four, five, six, seven, eight years of their life into studying it. You know, that's a serious commitment that... Uh, psychotherapists who are licensed and accredited have undertaken. You know, there's less, uh, much less regulation in the UK than there is in most other countries uh, to work at that level of depth. Um, but part of me would have loved to go through it. I mean, my uh, three years, two and a half, three years of uh, studying this master's, um, half of our literature was psychotherapy literature and existential literature. So, you know, there was a coaching part, but I studied it at depth already. You know, there's a question around what stamp of approval do I need in order to work at depth? You know, what's the ethical, moral and legal framework in order to work at that kind of depth? Um, but I think this is the intersection. I always wanted to go to that kind of depth. And I know personally, at what point do I feel out of my depth? And then I need to refer that client. Um, so the intersection and the gray area between coaching and therapy is something, as I said, I've, I've always been interested in and I have explored at quite some depth. And that's what I work with most of my supervisees, either in supervision groups or one-to-one. Or -one. That's the, one of the topics that comes up the most. How far can coaches go? You know, how far can I, uh, can I, how deep can I dive with this person? If we have this diving analogy of taking somebody into depth, you know, and you're, you're the kind of, uh, not diving instructor, but you're a diving partner and, you know, the water is murky and you can't quite, you can only see that deep. You need to go deeper. But there's a, there's a risk at depth. You can't just like come back up suddenly, you know, in scuba diving, that's actually really dangerous. 
So you need to tread quite carefully when you are in a, in a certain level of depth beyond where you can just dive to the surface. So that intersection is so interesting to me. Yeah, I, I'd like to just explore that a bit more with you. Um, I supervise coaches and uh, I think most people drawn to coaching perhaps wanted to be a therapist or wanted to... <laughs> depth have certainly usually had a, a great interest in human psychology and change and uh, uh, and very many find great satisfaction in the coach training that they do but then go on to go I still think I need to do some therapeutic training as well equally now on our coach training course we get lots of um, therapists who say hey I need to get a coaching qualification because coaches very often are working with senior execs, making more money than therapists. So I really see the two professions, industries, whatever you want to call them, kind of coming together. And that's causing, as you've said, real confusion, particularly for the coaches who don't have therapeutic training about, am I allowed to do this? Where are the limits? So I love your analogy about scuba diving and diving with someone and not getting the bends by coming up too quickly. But what does that practically mean? What um, steer do you give to coaches who come to supervision and say, you know, where are the limits? Yeah, the, the thing about coaching is that sometimes when we talk about it, it seems like it's this one thing that is well-defined, you know, when it really, that's, couldn't be further from the truth. You know, it's an unregulated profession with a huge range of what it can be. And uh, I come from an academic background. So um, when I started out coaching, I thought it was very well defined because that was my training. And then I stepped out and I met a lot of coaches in the real world, so to speak, you know, and I realized, oh, they're giving advice and they're putting their mentor hat on. Some of them are consultants. Uh, some of them are basically therapists who earn more money. Um, <laughs> so there's a huge range of what it might be. I've come across hundreds of different definitions. And I work with, uh, when I work with coaches on this, um, I work with them that they build their own definition. Because what I think is most important is that a coach or any practitioner can sit down with a client in their consultation and say, this is the frame that I, uh, this, is, this is my space, you know, this is what I can offer. You know, how far that goes in the therapy sector or what you call it. Clients generally don't care what you call it. They care whether you can help them. So if you say, this is the way that I work and this is what I can offer and this is what I cannot offer. Do you want to work with me on that basis? Then clients can make an informed decision whether to work with them. So I became, I, used, I started out very attached to the terminology of what coaching is and at what point do you have to call it something different. You know, when, when I use a more integrative approach with coaches, I, I felt I need to call it something different. So this is how rocket supervision uh, emerged, you know, because I allowed myself to wear my training hat during my work and my, men my business mentoring hat and my supervision hat. And then there's the elements of, of existential psychotherapy that I bring. You know, um, I, I make it very clear I'm not a licensed psychotherapist, um, but I went quite far into that realm with my training and the nature of the questions exploring identity of use as a coach at depth, I think that can be very therapeutic. So there's powerful shifts going on there. Um, but the terminology became, it's still important to me, but I know to clients it's not. So I think what is important for, for therapists wanting to coach and for coaches who want to go more into depth 
uh, is that they make sure that the client is safe. They make sure that they don't practice beyond their level of confidence. It makes me really happy to hear you say that a lot of uh, coaches want to add psychotherapy training um, before they feel they can go into that kind of depth. Because a lot of the coaches that I know, they, they want to go into depth, but they have already excluded the possibility of studying another year or two or three in order to add the, is it the necessary, the required skill set. Because a lot of these coaches do fantastic work at depth. And maybe they don't need the training, but it's probably a good idea because there'll be a client that is vulnerable where they don't know what they're doing. And, and maybe, hopefully, they notice and they re recognize that they're out of their depth. But I know certainly a handful of coaches who go into depth not really knowing what they do. You know? And at, at that point, when you have an overconfident coach who, who unravels past trauma with a client, Uh, potentially not knowing how to hold the emotional space that is opened up afterwards, they can do some real damage. So this is where we have to be very, very careful when we look at, you know, moving into one or the other area. Therapists are less at risk because, you know, if they screw up the coaching bit, worst case scenario is they don't reach their goals. You know, um, they, can, they can hold the space um, of, of vulnerability, you know, so they have that safety net, so to speak. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm thinking about the um, different um, uh, expectations, I suppose, or promises. There's a kind of inherent promise in coaching. It's not always an explicit, but it's just an implicit promise that we will get somewhere. And that, that really, really doesn't sit in therapy very readily. In therapy, there's like, you're here. It could take a long time. It could take <laughs> years. Maybe we'll get somewhere. <laughs> Maybe we won't. But the, the, that puts far less pressure on the therapist. I yeah. and, and I sometimes see over, I guess what I'm trying to say is I sometimes see the um, coaching profession in some cases, over-promising outcomes in a short space of time. Yeah, I think there's this notion of partnering with a client when we talk about coaching. I always really like that because it, we can say pressure. You could also say responsibility, you know. Um, and when we partner with somebody, we take more responsibility than when we provide a space where, that we hold for the client to explore something without necessarily um, a particular outcome or a goal that is well-defined. I mean, there are therapists who work with very well-defined goals, you know, in the CBT area, there's uh, worksheets and there's well-defined outcomes and, you know, uh, measurements of uh, what would be a successful outcome of the therapy. So again, therapy has also a broad range. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's difficult to define the line, you know, um, I think generally coaches work with the present and, forward into the future, whereas generally therapists work with the past and the present. But that's not always true, but it's perhaps a good starting point. Another one would be that therapists tend to work with people who are struggling to cope and are perhaps, you know, I don't want to say broken, I hate that word, but like, you know, um, really with real difficulties, problems. And coaches generally work with people who are resourceful and whole and want to move forward with their lives and learn something. It's a good starting point, certainly not always true. 
you know, um, coaches often work with a more um, behavior change, performance, uh, more surface level change, whereas uh, uh, therapists tend to work with more deep-seated change, character change, transformation. Certainly not always true, but can be a good starting point. If we put those three together, I think we can begin to look at more where coaches are and where therapists are. But in the end, it's an individual definition that every practitioner needs to, needs to lay out in front of a client for them to say yes or no to. Yeah, generally. Generally, yeah. It's a great word for where we are. <laughs> this is a completely unfair question, but I want to ask it of you. If you were general manager of the coaching world, Ooh. what would you do? What would, what would you like to see change within the coaching world at the moment that would, that would make it a little more specific and a little less general? Mm. The very first thing that comes to my mind is uh, teach ethics as the very first module of every coaching training. Um, I, I had a whole module of ethics and I didn't, I didn't like that it was there. I wanted to learn how to coach, you know, and it turned out the most important module that I've done in my coach training because it provided me with a, not a set of rules, which ethics can sometimes be seen as like a code of ethics. These are the rules that I need to follow. No, for, for me, ethics are, a set of questions that every, every practitioner needs to continually ask themselves to make sure that they are practicing authentically and that their clients are safe, you know, that they're practicing within the bounds of what they can provide and be very honest and reflective about that process, you know. And I think if coaches work within that personal framework of what's right and wrong in their particular professional framework, um, and they know what they can subscribe to, they know what they can provide and what they cannot provide and be very clear in communicating that to a client. Um, I think that'll make everybody a better coach and every client will be safer for it. That's a fantastic answer. Um, it's so easy to, uh, as, as a tutor and as a student on a coaching program, to want to start getting down to the practice self-reflection, experiential stuff. Um, but actually, I love the idea of a really solid grounding in ethics as the starting point being a, a, a essential to the practice. What came to mind was it's a long time since I had a baby, <laughs> but I remember when I was first um, pregnant, you go on these courses and, and they teach you to uh, bathe the baby and care for the baby and actually I was solely fixated on actually you know the pregnancy and the birth and I didn't listen to any of that and then I had the baby and I thought oh actually I don't know what to do with it because I didn't listen to those first bits and why that came to me I don't know but it's a it seemed like a useful analogy uh, it, it get, getting people to realize that these are the important things that you will need for the rest of your life yeah. And I'd, I'd love to spin that further as well, because uh, there's some very practical skills that are like, there is a wrong way to bath a baby that will get the baby killed. You know, that is, that is clearly objectively the wrong way to bath the baby. But when it comes to teaching the baby what's right and wrong, 
or how to teach like good values, you know, or like how to help it learn in a way that makes sense in terms of how the baby is like and what's the character, you know, there's different ways of learning. Then there is no right and wrong anymore. And this is, a, this is, this is not clear. There is no set of rules that you can write for parenting. There are many rules written for parenting, but ultimately there's a range and there's different ways of doing it. And it depends on the child parent relationship, but there are some right and wrong ways to, you know, to feed it or, to, you know, what's the right amount of sleep um, that will have certain outcomes and they're well-researched. So this is where the intersection of like evidence-based sciences and what's the art of coaching, you know? Wow. You danced in the moment with that metaphor. So <laughs> I love that. Um, Yannick, we are really like running out of time. We've got about five minutes left. You said this wouldn't be long enough. Um, so, so, so I wanted to just give you the opportunity to uh, actually let people know that you do training in, in existential coaching. Um, and I've signed up for your next, I think. Yes, I'm very happy about that. Yeah, I am too. I'm really looking forward to it. So um, did you just want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been running these weekends uh, in existential coaching since 2015 now. Uh, this was before the book came out, but where the first draft of the book was already uh, written and the whole concept was kind of in my head. And I wanted to uh, open up the existential framework for coaches. Um, so I do that privately now, um, and I run these trainings uh, maybe two times a year. Um, if there's more demand, sometimes three. Um, and there's, uh, there's an episode in, in June. I run them on Monday evenings, every Monday in June, which unfortunately is now sold out. Uh, you snatched the last two tickets away. <laughs> uh, we have another weekend uh, on the 13th or 14th of June. And uh, I, like, I run these trainings in the future, so anybody who's interested can come in, and uh, I'll keep their name on the list. It's really to to first of all, um, make the philosophical framework tangible. Because what I wanted to do with this book and in general is take the dense, complex, convoluted uh, philosophical texts and make them dance in the moment, so to speak. You know, because they are relevant. Everybody gets it. Everybody who's human will get what existentialism is about if you explain it to them or open it up in a way that they can relate to it. And they can always relate to that because they're also human. You know, everybody will have had moments of isolation or freedom or meaningless or endings, you know, death being the ultimate ending. Um, so if you take the, the complex concept and you, you make them understand how relevant this is to themselves as well to their clients and how almost everything that people bring to coaching is related to some existential theme on some level, then you just open up new possibilities to coach. You, you open up uh, ways to make connections between things that are going on that are quite surface and things that are going on underneath the surface, you know, things that are more connected to questions around identity and authenticity and how I, how, what's my relationship to uncertainty. Um, so exploring these relationships and uh, putting them into a framework that coaches can work with. Um, that is the fascinating bit that, uh, that just elevates people's coaching. Um, they, they are able to have questions, to, to discuss topics around meaning or meaninglessness, about the big decisions and the big questions in life that so often inform and influence the small decisions that we make during our days. 
And there's a couple of models of existential coaching and guidelines um, that have been written and uh, generally lots of discussion and uh, lots, of, lots of practical tools, but also lots of uh, deep philosophy. And I, I think I found a good mix after all these years. Um, people seem to like it. Well, I can't wait. Uh, we will share your details as well so that people can, if, if that's okay, we'll put your website. I will finally on your website, had a look at your website and I loved uh, a page on your website, which I think is called Existential Life Advice. <laughs> Very tongue in cheek, obviously. It was I grappled with the word <laughs> and then I did change it. Because um, this, is how, this is how the nuggets, um, I write a newsletter now called Nuggets. And this is how the nuggets actually developed. At first, I called them little nuggets, little existential nuggets. Um, and then I read through them, by the way, this is a Pinterest board. And I, I found little bits and pieces. Um, and I thought, oh, here's some positive existentialism, but very tangible and sometimes tongue in cheek, sometimes funny, but very applicable. And that's what I wanted to get out to people. And then I thought, well, what would I click on if I were on a coach's website and I was looking for some advice? This is probably the closest I get to advice. <laughs> well, I wondered if you have a little nugget for us for today, for this situation we find ourselves in right yeah. now, COVID-19, mm. isolation, lockdown, with all that it brings. I think the most important thing from an existential perspective is to not fight the inevitable. Um, there's so much what we call facticity in the world, the things that we cannot change, the things that just happen, you know, and they might be absurd and random or they might have some master plan behind them. We don't know, you know. I, I believe this virus is something that is just happening periodically. Uh, I'm sure, like, I don't think this is a, a godsend plague, but it might be. I just don't know. But the existential perspective on this or my existential perspective is on this, is this is this is first and foremost this is it's not bad it's not good it's not trying to make you suffer first and foremost it is existence precedes essence so if we take that uh, as an existential viewpoint then this crisis this pandemic this virus that's just something that is and i can not fight it because it's it is and so what can i do with it i can Perhaps, well, I don't want to say embrace the virus, but take it as something that you cannot change and then move forward in the most positive way that you can, you know? So what can I do despite this? And I really like this word, despite. In German, it's uh, trotzdem. You know, there is a, a rebellious character to it. You know, it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I choose not to allow this to affect my, my mindset or my well-being. You know, I can, uh, I can embrace this human condition with all its absurdity and meaninglessness or suffering, and I can move forward um, in a way that I want to. You know, I don't need to let this get to me. And that gives you a hardiness, a robustness, a resilience um, that I think allows you to go through these kind of crises because you stop looking for how they make sense necessarily on a global scale. You know, you just accept them as something that is and you move forward. That was more than a nugget. That was like a gold bar. Of it, was a, it was a veggie burger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, as I've been listening to you, 
Um, and every time I've met you, I've had this same feeling. First of all, being around you kind of makes me feel good. It nourishes me. But I've also thought your drive not to be bored is really misplaced, I think, because <laughs> you could never be bored. Your mind goes in so many <laughs> directions all the time. Uh, you just wouldn't let it happen. Uh, I think I transcended it. <laughs> <laughs> and now to, to turn around the word despite a bit, despite my desire to keep talking to you, unfortunately we have to uh, end uh, the podcast with huge thanks from me to you, Yannick. It's been really, really fascinating and inspiring to hear from you. And let's do it again. I'm very much looking forward to that. And anybody who wants to find out more about existentialism, um, uh, have a look at existential.coach. That's my website. And you'll find a link to, uh, to all of the references and lots of the stuff that I mentioned here, the existential life advice. And uh, any questions? I say my doors are always open. I don't think I can say that anymore with the amount of work I got on now. But I, I generally, I really like to hear from people and what they think about this stuff or the impact that we have with our work. So thank you for giving me this, this opportunity to talk to you. And I'm, I know we'll continue this either in another podcast or, or, or privately. So thank you. Thank you.